You should have called first. Hey, friends. You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. Sorry for the post-holiday lag. I took some time, ski trips, reading, home repairs, general NUI, staring at walls while pruning Spotify playlists, diving into the Criterion Collection, thanks to a gift subscription from one of you listeners, of all things. Shout out to Carlos from Buenos Aires. What a world to be able to connect with people like you in this way. I'm working on some ways to keep that connection going after Pata Bing, so stay tuned for some news on that front over the next couple episodes. Okay. Kaisha, a name of Hindi origin, which means dream or gift of God. And in a way, it sort of was exactly just that, as we're not done. We've still got half a season or a final season, or a victory lap, or whatever the fuck. This episode existed to set up or be a gateway to the final stretch. The last time we got an episode named after a woman was Isabella, back in season one. And similarly, Kaisha proved to be as enigmatic as Isabella, as well as something that drove Tony right back into Melfi's chair. This episode was written by Terrence Winter, Matthew Weiner, and David Chase. The trifecta was directed by Alan Taylor and originally aired June 4th, 2006. And I remember vividly watching it from my new apartment on 22nd and 3rd in the city. I had chicken fingers and fries with a side of ranch delivered from Lyric Diner at the end of the block. HBO synopsis? In the season six finale, Tony gets Carmela's career with the spec house back on track. Christopher picks up where he left off with Juliana, but it leads to dangerous ends. And AJ becomes smitten by a young lady he works with. Meanwhile, Phil won't leave well enough alone, but medical troubles sidetrack him, prompting a surprising visit from Tony. The opening title card was dedicated to John Patterson, who, of course, directed every season finale of the series up until this one. The opening music playing, The Rolling Stones, Moonlight Mile. Big fan of the strings on that song, equal parts haunting and beautiful. The episode opens and closes with this piece. Bookending a Sopranos episode with the same song, as we know, was rare. Of course, the Stones did it first in Funhouse, followed by Van Morrison's Glad Tidings in all due respect. Safe to say, two of a handful of artists that can prop up a show like this. Actually, calling it a show makes me a fucking disgrace. I meant to say, who can prop up art like this? We open on a car pulling up to a house exterior we haven't seen before. A place by the water. One of Alan Sappinsley's rentals, I wondered? Garage opens, there's a jet ski, umbrellas, 
Looks like it's got the label of that coffee brand, Lavazza, on it. Shh. Nobody tell Pauly they've been around since 1895. That, of course, contrasted against the fledgling Starbucks store taken over by Howard Schultz after a trip to Italy in the 1980s. There's an inflatable tube, some chairs, and then we see Carlo headed towards a fridge. Gloves on, opens the freezer. He cooking again? Some frozen meat for a bolognese, maybe? He takes out something and heaps it on the table. And on the lyric, when the wind blows, the thing wrapped in butcher paper is revealed to be Fat Dom's head. And then the lyric, with a head full of snow. Now, Jagger likely meant Coke, but a great play on words as we're looking at a frozen head. Just a couple of seconds in, and the episode's already doing quick work checking boxes. Rolling stones, decapitated heads, and puns. At this point, we can piece together that this is Carlo's place, or one of his places. And now's as good a time as any to bring up a connection about Carlo that I've sometimes wondered about. Carlo Gervaisi versus Carlo Rizzi in The Godfather. Not in terms of physical or personality similarities, but in terms of the name foreshadowing a suboptimal outcome of sorts. Couldn't help but see a connection there. Certainly of the reach variety, no question. But the kind of thing that pops into the head when you think about this stuff long enough. Cut to a road. The vantage from the driver's seat. Music still going. En route to South Kearney. At least that's what the signs would suggest. And that's an industrial carve-out, so it would make sense that that's where he's heading. He drives over to a storm drain and kicks the head in there. Takes him a few tries as the head's likely still pretty frozen. Fat, too. True to the namesake. Note the two telephone poles that also double as cross-like figures in the backdrop, flanking either side of the storm drain as he retires Fat Dom's cranium. Fat Dom's not exactly Christ-like in the middle, but I couldn't help but see the religiosity of his disposition. Of the frame. He calls up Sill, who's at the bing. Girls dancing around him. Carlos says he went up to Connecticut. He lie. Seemed like a short trip is all. Asks about a barbecue up in Sheepshead Bay. That's still a go. Nice shorthand for what we're about to see. Sill says he's not sure where the big guy left that. Nice move by Sill to kill the dialogue. Especially on the phone, by the way. As we cut to a place in Sheepshead Bay. Actually shot in Queens, but... What are you going to do? A hair salon. At least that's what the exterior would suggest. Phil and his gumad enjoying a laugh. He hops out of the car, opens her door, and a bagel joint they head toward explodes. On the lyric, warm my bones. Too good. Looking back, it feels like the timing was off if they were trying to get Phil. But as we'll see, I think the fact that Phil happened to be there was incidental. They both blow back, but seem to sort themselves out after the blast. A couple of T-1000s over here. 
Cut to T finishing up with a new girlfriend. His phone rings. It's Benny. Says it's done as he rolls down his window. Gives T a listen. Sirens and whatnot. T says it sounds like a real weenie roast, showing he can master the art of even a tongue twister. Benny says his friend the Shaw was walking in when it happened, of course referring to the comparison between Phil and the Shah of Iran, which I'll come back to in a sec. Him and some Skifusa got blown back on their keisters. Skifusa is the Italian version of the once-politicized expression, nasty woman. This as Benny rolls up, the tinted black windows, all in a day's work. Good that Benny got to do this job. Exact, some kind of revenge. Recall what Phil did to his face when he was on the hunt for Tony B back in season five. This, too, is a start. Cut to Tony signing over the final papers, the Jamba Juice sale. Only thing that could make this better was if he was sipping one as he signed. Juliana is there with her client. The Jamba rep, bright red suit. They all shake and leave, but T holds back to talk to her, to apologize for that other night. Note the bridge in the background outside the window, the city behind it, ominous, always, to my mind, reminiscent of Vin McKazian. Great contrast, modern office space with a rusted relic. Of the past. A beautiful day overall to get rejected. Also note the word horizon on a poster behind Skiff as we see an actual horizon off to the right. Easter eggs like Ready Player One over here. He asks her to dinner now that the sale is over, now that he's not officially mixing business with pleasure, which technically He's done, by the way. Remember the girl at Barone? But who am I, the hypocrite police now? She says no apologies necessary, but that she'll pass on dinner. Tension like Donovan McNabb and T.O. over here. She walks off, but Tony, as we know, is undeterred. This isn't over. Cut to Chris. Choice cut as we'll see in a moment. Lots of cuts to Chris this episode. Could that mean it's the end of the road for him? Going over paint options for the nursery with Kelly. As right a fucking passage as it gets. Chris is superstitious. Doesn't want to decorate until after the baby's born. Calls out some penguin movie that made Kelly cry once. You sit on an egg for months. One little thing goes wrong and you're left with nothing. If you've seen the scene he's referring to, it's devastation on a Wilson and Castaway level. Of course, he's talking about March of the Penguins, the one narrated by Morgan Freeman. Came out in 2005. Originally a French film. It's actually been narrated by multiple people. Morgan Freeman and Amitabh Bachchan are two of the more notable names. There's a March of the Penguins 2 as well, but I missed the boat on that one. It was released exclusively on Hulu 
back in 2018. A title you also might find being handed out at a car wash. Kelly reminds Chris and us she's not Adriana. She's healthy. The baby's healthy. But no matter. Chris wants to stop counting chickens. Cut to Carmela, someone who counts chickens before they hatch, perhaps, in a hospital, carrying a 1-800-Flowers bouquet. 1-800-Flowers. Whatever happened there? Turns out a lot. Market cap in 2006, around $400 million. Today, close to $2 billion. Leopard print jacket. You know, real hospital visiting hours attire. She's there to see Liz LaServa, who looks to be in real bad shape. Her downward spiral continues. By the looks of it, her wrists are bandaged like they've been cut. Speaking of cutting things, cut to a turkey being slammed on the table. Murray's all natural. Artisanal poultry farmers since 1992. Giblets may be missing. Those are the internal organs. Had to explain that to my kid this holiday season. And the Anthony Bourdain recipe I used for the turkey this year encouraged me to use them for the stuffing in gravy. After explaining it to my son out loud, we were both like, nah. Carms putting away groceries. Always intrigue in these otherwise boring moments. As in life, they're where the real things happen. White robe Tony comes in, knight in white French terry armor, asks about AJ. He's been working on schedule, on time, at least since last episode. As much as this is Chris's episode, it's also AJ's. T notices something's off with Carm, as he is programmed to do. What's the matter? She tells him Liz tried to kill herself with pills. She got something in the mail for aid. Thanksgiving tradition they did for the Salvation Army. Set Liz off, evidently. She says she had another dream about aid in Paris. Tony remembers Pepe Le Pew. A reference, of course, to the Looney Tunes character. A hopelessly romantic French skunk. Immortalized in popular culture via references in The Sopranos. and. A Nirvana song. Speaking of Nirvana, ski trips always trigger nostalgia for me. And Nevermind came back hard and heavy recently. The power of that album is unreal. The way it holds up today, if you actually climb into it from track one and just stay with it, it's as rewarding as rewatching a Soprano season. Recall that Nirvana was indirectly referenced in the show when Tony talks about Kurt Cobain. He still subscribes to the notion that Liz is a bitter lush who can't get over the fact that her daughter moved away because she couldn't stand her. Made me wonder how long he's been sitting on that one. Carmela internalizes that, projects it onto what happened with Meadow, her leaving for California. All this reminds me of Abe. It actually makes you wonder what they did with the body. And more to the point, if a storyline where it is discovered is looming would be very 
unsoprano, but not outside the realm of possibility. Even that suitcase Christopher tossed, the Thunderbird in long-term parking, DNA, something, anything. I sound like Butch. That'll make sense in a second. Carm can't help herself. It's the holidays, Thanksgiving, and everything's going to shit. The spec house, the fucking spec house. About as hackneyed as Chris's addiction relapses at this point. How fast that Paris high wore off, huh? Tony attempts to reassure her. You raised two gorgeous kids. You got a husband that loves you. You've made us a beautiful home. Doesn't that count for something? Then he hum-hugs her, like Roe did last episode. It's an interesting question, and one that she comes back to at the end of the episode. Full circle. Acknowledging their beautiful home out loud to Blanca, who we'll meet in a sec. Cut to T enjoying a game with Chris and Bobby. Oh, and AJ, as we see him half asleep on the floor, catching up on some sleep after all those early mornings at work. They're in the media room, a place where many other season finales have been spent. Thanksgiving Day. T's picking on AJ. Tells AJ to go check on the bird. When he's gone, T asks about Chris's bird. Notice the clandestine phone calls. Which they all make, by the way. Chris plays dumb, but says, what can I say? He's got needs too. T calls him out for having a pregnant wife at home. Timing is fucking priceless as always. So there's no one. How come you don't bring her around? Honestly, I would, but uh, between us, she's black. Oh, you're begging a shine? She's hot too. Classy. That's an extremely derogatory term. The origin has to do with the stereotype that many black people shined shoes. Cut to AJ on the job site, hauling a wheelbarrow just like his dad said he'd be doing. Uncle Polly pulls up, asks what the fuck he's doing. Then, AJ sees a girl. Not the same one as back when Finn was there. A different one. This is Blanca. The word Blanca just after Chris said he was dating someone who was black is interesting. After her, there's something about Mary walkover moment. She comes over to Polly and hands him a check. AJ takes off his glove to introduce himself. Most masculine thing we've seen him do yet. Guy's a couple of steps closer to being Gary Cooper. Asks if she lives in Jersey. Non sequitur, but hey, he's talking. Given that his face is frozen, that's a W. She walks away. There's something about Mary in reverse. And he can't stop staring. (laughs) Note the excavator behind him is rising like his heart on. Perfectly timed. Pauly takes a call from his urologist, but we're trained on AJ. Something about Blanca's cooking there. Speaking of cooking, cut to Chris in bed with his new girlfriend. Who, we wonder at first. Until the big reveal as the camera slides from the feet to the faces. Also makes you think for a sec that AJ didn't waste any time. Nice setup all around. After Chris finishes, the who is revealed to be Juliana Skiff. 
He asks if she's going to put up a tree. The show's telling us a lot of time has elapsed since Thanksgiving. We're embarking on Christmas now. She says she comes from Hanukkah people. Interesting phraseology there. Says it doesn't do much for her, though. She reading a lot of Richard Dawkins now? We see that they're in deep. Can't stop looking at each other. And Chris says he can't stop wanting to be with her all the time. They share a cigarette. She wants to know what they're doing. What this is. He says he rushed in with Kelly. Says he doesn't want a family with her. She's got no idea who he is. Skiff mocks that. She doesn't understand you? Guy singing his own version of Escape's Understanding. Oh yeah, I'm going there. Cut to a sit-down, although that's definitionally questionable here, as we'll see. Brokered by Little Carmine. Based on the columns and the home, I'm assuming it's Little Carmine's place. Always did have a thing for Corinthians. Was it Ionic? Phil and Butch sit on one couch. Butch, by the way, is a new addition for the last leg of the show. Effectively, Phil's number two. Played by actor, the late Gregory Antonacci. Who also played Johnny Torrio, Al Capone's mentor on Boardwalk Empire. Coincidentally or not, he and Frank Vincent died within a week of each other in 2017. Tony and Silvio sit on another couch. And little Carmine sits in his own little mediator chair in between them. Jerry opposite him, also sitting solo. Note, Phil's the only one who made himself a drink. Carmine begins, says, Phil asked to arrange this meeting after the fire in his wire room. Phil corrects him. You asked me to fucking attend. Hold up. What the fuck's a wire room? Clearly a relic of the past. It's how bets and data were coordinated in a pre-internet, pre-smartphone era. How exactly? I'm still blown away that a fax machine can do what it does. That scene in The Insider between Weigand and Bergman? Or the one in Jerry Maguire where an offer comes through? Blows my mind every time. Carmen doesn't want to call it a sit-down because of the inclement, negative implications. Fucking Ron Burgundy over here. Instead, Carmine wants to call it a meeting of minds. Tony taps the armrest, looking away, while Phil is more or less locked on him. Bad optics, at least from a pissing contest standpoint. Carmine continues. Certain incidents have expired, likely meant transpired. But the bottom line is their bottom lines. You know, to quote Tony, the motherfucking cocksucking money. Phil takes a shot at Vito's bottom to an audience of one, it seems, Butch. He says, you're talking about a captain. Phil wonders, captain? The good ship lollipop, right? A reference to Shirley Temple and a song she once sang. So he goes back to the money. Vito put a lot of it 
in his pocket. And Phil's too. Phil says, you want to talk about earners? Fat Dom. T and Sil shrug. Well played. What about him? Phil says he's MIA. A lot of people concerned. And he knows that he was last seen in New Jersey. So is the Hindenburg. Maybe you want to look into that too. That was Lakehurst, New Jersey, specifically. 1937. The ship was named after a former president of Germany, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg. And somewhat inspired the band name Led Zeppelin, as it was the Zeppelin company that built the ship. Last thing of note on the Hindenburg, it shares about as many conspiracy theories as JFK. Wise guys dropping references on wise guys never gets old. Then, Carmine gets personal. I grew up on this. I just lost my friend, Rusty. Says he's still going to get to the bottom of that. Tony's got Carmela breathing down his neck about Adriana. And now this? References the late, great Carmine Lupertazzi Sr. Pointing his finger the whole time for added emphasis, naturally. Says, a pint of blood costs more than a gallon of gold. Anybody care to parse that gem? I think the message is in part, nothing costs more than a life lost. Which is ironic because most of these guys could give two shits about another person's life. We get a great wide shot to show how confused everybody was. A visual representation of this fucking guy. Tony and Phil indicate a willingness to move forward. Leave the past behind. Or try to, like Florence and the Machine, and shake it out. Carmine calls it a wise decision. With the safe degree of confidence, as if he were an arbiter of such things. Wipe the slate clean. And we're done. Balance is restored in the galaxy. Next. Not exactly. Carmine brings up Phil's brother, Billy. Your brother, Billy, whatever happened there? All right, then. Whatever uh, happened there? The shooting. Whatever happened there? God rest his soul, man. I'll tell you what fucking happened. This piece of shit's cousin Calm put down, six Phil. bullets in the kid without any provocation whatsoever. My cousin's dead. Fuck you. Phil. Hey, we were making headway here. I didn't mean to Fuck say... Fuck what you meant, cocksucker. Come on. Whatever happened there? There's an expression that has since come to suggest a bridge to nowhere. Phil F-bombs his way out of there with his security detail. And T, when it was all going so good, the situation was looking up. Jesus, Carmine, why would you possibly bring that up? Thought he was quite polite to Carmine, actually. Who looks defeated. Another fucking stagmire. Not his last. And we cut to a bar. 
Blanca's dancing with herself like Billy Idol in the corner. AJ's at the bar getting drinks with two guys from work, swapping war stories about nail guns. The song, 1980s Precious by the Pretenders. Spot on for the moment. AJ and Blanca make strong eye contact. He does nothing about it, but she does. Walks over. Dance walks over. Full seduction mode. She says Passaic, or as Stringer Bell might say, round the way. Continuing the conversation they started earlier, when he asked where she lived. Then she asks herself out for him. He's game, thinking, is it always this easy? She mentions her three-year-old son, Hector. You know, full transparency and all. Also, there's three again. And the name Hector took me straight to Greek mythology. Hector, Achilles, and the Trojan horse. Blanca and her son, Hector, as the Puerto Rican, or importantly to Tony, possibly Dominican, armed forces inside the Trojan horse, that's AJ in this scenario, barreling into the Soprano home at Christmas. I know I got the allegiances crossed up here. The real Hector fought off the Trojan horse and the Greeks until he met his match in Achilles, but what are you, Socrates now? She puts her number down on a napkin, seals it with lipstick, but only puts six digits on it. Who invented that? She lets him know he's got to do something here. Love that even she's self-aware enough to see that. Cut from one self-aware woman to another, Juliana, in her office. Those bridges. Bridges of Essex County over here. An assistant comes in to let her know she's got an emergency call. She thinks it's her dad, grabs it. But guess who? T. She immediately wants to get off the phone, but he wants to talk business. An old warehouse on Panama. That's right next to Newark Liberty International. Port Newark. Used to be a uniform supply. Wants to know the asking. Note her brown-haired head adjacent to the rust-brown bridges makes it look like three. Great framing. She essentially says it's more headache than it's worth. A hard sell, as he calls it, sarcastically. Tony's idea is to fix it so she can flip it. Partners. She considers it dubious, but also calculating. You serious about this? Tony wonders what? You never do shit like that? That likely being talk the owner down on price so she can make a bigger profit on the back end as opposed to a straight commission. Conflict of interest type scenario. A breach of fiduciary duty. She says she'll get back to him and hangs up. He's satisfied on his end, closer to reeling her in, taking her off the shelf to rework his later statement to Chris. Then we get a long beat on her contemplating this opportunity and more before we cut to her in an AA meeting. Apparently, many viewers didn't pay attention and this scene threw them off kilter. She's telling her Tony story to a group of people. 
the one where he split on her, and how Cristal helped her through the immediate aftermath of that moment. The scene looks to be a flashback. Subtle, but great setup. We're seeing now that Tony sent her on a downward spiral. And part of her repulsion to him is the course he put her on. But I've never stopped wondering if some of the Chris thing was just to get back at T. Who wants to be with a number whatever when you had a shot with a number one? Chris, we see, is at the meeting, connecting dots here through simple cuts. Chris later stops her outside, says he liked her share in there. She says she's never heard him share before. But that it's not a judgment. Already walking on eggshells so early into the relationship. The writing was on the wall. Interesting thought he offers back. You learn as much from others. Probably one of the smartest things Chris has ever said. And as Neil Young reminds us, learning from other people is what music is all about. She says he looks familiar. He points to the pork store, Satrials. She puts two and two together. But he doesn't know she was talking about Tony. She's got the upper hand. Said the same way Morgan Freeman said it about John Doe in Seven. Then she says, see you around. Almost as bad as that Chris Brown song. But he asks to grab a coffee now. She's down. Says to follow her to a dive on Sip and JFK. That's Jersey City. VIP diner. Still there today. Same as before which is great to see, as it almost closed after a sale a year or so ago. But that deal fell through in a big win for the nostalgic diner side of the ledger. Especially since the legendary 101 diner in Hollywood just shut down. The one in Swingers and so many others. The place where scripts we know and love were written or hatched. Next, we see them going to town in the car. I realize as I say it how much more impactful that statement could be if it were an actual town car. Oh, you're going to get fucking cute now. And we exit the flashback and return to Juliana, clearly satisfied at the sequence of events. Her smile and long gaze to the side. Picture perfect. Why she is who she is. Almost like she's working an angle here. A long con of sorts. Also, love the detail of the office humdrum. Momentary fantasy and escapism amidst the fucking regularness of life. Again, was part of it to get back at Tony. To stick it in number one's face by going to town with number two. Or number three, I guess, at this point. Cut to Casa Soprano, tea, eating ice cream, watching a doc on Lincoln, directed by a guy I share a first name with. We see Lincoln looking down, melancholy. Now, Lincoln will rear his head again in the series, 
So I'll have some more for him then. But in light of recent events in America, hearing the name Lincoln made me reflect on the Lincoln Memorial. Imagine how impactful, how much legend has to be baked into your story to earn a monument such as the one built for him in Washington, D.C. Really separates the men from the boys. Anyway, the doc T's watching is talking about depression, how it can be a form of forced introversion. As you can see, he's more engaged than normal. Lincoln and depression is kind of an interesting piece of history when looked at through the lens of this show. Experts say Lincoln's mother was responsible for his lifelong melancholy, specifically her untimely death, followed by a cascade of other childhood losses. But forced introversion, what's that all about? Whatever happened there? I decided to nerd out a little and got access to a PubMed article thanks to my wife's subscription. It was on depression and, specifically, Carl Jung's ideas about it. Incidentally, the author, W. Steinberg, was from Tenafly, New Jersey. Go figure. To address this notion of involuntary introversion, depression was characterized as either simple or melancholic. Stay with me. Melancholic depression is characterized by self-blame and self-deprecation. Ideas of guilt and sin lead to a desire for punishment, sometimes as far as suicide. Now, this version of depression, I think it's safe to say, doesn't apply to T. He wasn't melancholic like Lincoln was. But the contrast is interesting. because. He's searching for something. Absolution, redemption, justification, rationales. And in his mind, all this is lumped together. It's all a big whatever the fuck. And I like to think that when he sees stuff like this on TV, he's downloading it like the Matrix to solve himself. Incredibly relatable. Young explained depression by what he called ego depletion. One of the byproducts of ego depletion was turning an otherwise extrovert toward introversion. Young said this served as a compensatory function. So, how do you treat that? According to Young, by focusing on the imbalance of psychic energy and not the underlying causes of depression. That's right. About as obvious as a pint of blood costs more than a gallon of gold. Now, I took this inquiry a step further. Specifically, Treating psychopaths. Is it even realistic? Possible? Melfi considers this early on, but it rears its head again as the series winds down. And knowing it was coming, 
And having the keys to PubMed for a while, I decided to let her rip. I found an article called To Treat a Psychopath from 2014. There was some earlier stuff, but this was the most recent. My logic, being real scientific-like over here, was to find the most recent research on the subject to see if anything's changed since the era of Tony and prior to that. The author reminds us that conventional treatment is ineffective with psychopaths. However, more recently, drugs that modulate brain function have shown some results. But, the author argues, because of a psychopath's Weltanschauung, yeah, Weltanschauung, or a person's worldview, a word of Kupferbergian proportion, originally ascribed to Immanuel Kant, because of a person's Weltanschauung, psychopaths are treatment-resistant. Absence of empathy is treatment-resistant. Now, the opposite of empathy is instructive here. It's when the psychopath manipulates, exploits, and parasitizes those around him, regarding others as tools or a means to an end, and only that. Importantly, criminal psychopaths extend this behavior to members of their own family. When it comes to lying, cheating, stealing, or even outright physical harm, there is no distinction in the psychopath's eye between family and an ordinary, round-the-way guy. Back to Weltanschauung, because, well, how many times can you say that and get away with it? For treatment to work, the psychopath requires a moral commitment to the process. Moral commitment. I don't know much about much, but that seems to mean more than just showing up, like Tony, and mostly just going through the paces. It's what Melfi has called in the past the real work. I found it interesting that the author thought of psychopathy as less of a mental condition and more of a learned strategy. All the permutations. Quote, Being devoid of the emotions that ordinarily curtail immoral actions of various kinds, psychopaths have an adaptive advantage over people who come fully equipped with empathy, guilt, and shame. A distinction is made between moral and medical treatments. As we saw in Godfather 3, Michael didn't need a psychiatrist. He needed a priest. At the heart of the paper, we can return comfortably to Carmela. Mr. Empathy over here. Without a willingness and commitment to develop a capacity for empathy, one day, probably sooner rather than later, you're going to be Feech on that bus in All Happy Families. That or the other thing.
So if empathy can't be learned therapeutically, can it be programmed pharmacologically? If you can boost serotonin levels and sustain it over long periods of time, can empathy effectively be baked in to a psychopath's hard drive? Well, cases with fresh jolts of serotonin tested favorably in quick decision-making scenarios involving ultimatums, greater good type stuff. But a baseline level of empathy was required. Increased serotonin showed no effect on people who scored low on empathy. Thus, serotonin, a silver bullet, it is not. Rather, it's just one piece of a complex puzzle in which it seems, to quote the show and William Goldman, nobody knows anything. Also, can't help but hear Tony in all this talk of serotonin. Sarah, what? So, Carmela comes in, wearing a black and white top, almost Abraham Lincoln-like. Recall, he started this whole sidebar cascade. But her top, of course, as opposed to his, has the added bonus of Carmela Cleavage. She says she was at Linda Marola's for the annual toy drive, deep-cut needle thread from seasons past. Says they gave an Xbox this year, to which I thought, so that's where they all went. Thankfully, we were able to secure one in time for Christmas. And it's been a blessing and a curse. My kid can't stop talking about Roblox, and I discovered stress management in the form of Call of Duty. She mentions a Stan Klimek. He was up the thing, too. Ruth's husband. Who are these people? And why haven't we been to one of their dinner parties or brunches? He works for Kroll. Not the business intelligence and document e-discovery Kroll. Some Fugazi one. Anyway, the Stan guy does computers for them. He calls him a private eye. On Stan's advice, Carm wants to hire professionals to track aid down. Tony laughs, gurgles up a praline almost, tries to talk her out of it without caring too much. Fine balance there. Ends up tinkering with his ice cream, figuring out his next move. While Carm shares an anecdote about them finding a guy missing for 12 years at a watering station in the Mojave Desert. Now, Carmela said Mojave Desert. And it's incidental here, but will resurface again with Tony in a later episode. So put that in your pocket. So what's T's solution? Carmela's spec house is back on. From one distraction to another. He's banking that her need for materiality will trump any personal fact-finding missions she's hatched up. Walks into the bing to tell Syl to lean on that building inspector again. Says to do it for all our sakes. Carmela needs a new career. Next, Tony's greeted by Middle Easterners, the credit card crew, Murmur and Christopher's associates. They offer holiday greetings. Tony thinks for a sec. A, 
the fuck these guys care about Christmas? And B, ah, what the hell? Tis the season. True to his own version of psychopathy, these guys are tools on his belt, pawns on his board, means to his ends. But yeah, you too is about as empathic as it's going to get. Cut from two Middle Easterners to a place that looks like it got shelled by the Middle Eastern terror cells in the siege. Is Denzel en route? 44% on Rotten Tomatoes. I feel like it held up better than that, no? Bruce Willis's over-the-topness notwithstanding. Anyways, what's this, Siskel and Ebert now? T and Juliana. Checking out the place he inquired about. He says it's bigger than he thought. She keeps it professional, but he quickly turns to asking questions about her fiancé. She gets angry. Zero interest. Hands him the key. Tells him to stick it in the lockbox. A perfect expression for where he can stick his other thing too. At least as it pertains to her. Interesting cut though. He watches her walk off, but she leaves the door open. That's symbolic. Why cut what can be untied? Optionality, remember? Just love that detail. Cut to Chris having dinner at Juliana's place. Stuffing his face, actually. Symbolism there, too especially as he jokes about the number of sandwiches Tony can eat. Which sounded more driven by jealousy and insecurity than anything else. And right here is where I first really felt like he was done for. Could this be the episode? It's the finale. Would Tony find out about the two of them and take Chris out because of it? This thought here is what triggered the whole curability of psychopathy sidebar. Part of me always thought, Kaisha is when they're going to have their big showdown. A mono imano of Clint Eastwood proportion. I can almost hear an Ennio Morricone score. The color palette of the whole scene has red wedding vibes all over it. And the way Christopher is lit in the shot when he looks up at her. How you can see more of the whites of his eyes than the irises. Not unlike the way he looked up at Tony last season when Tony almost popped him after the accident with Adriana. There's a symmetry here. He shared a script with her. The Cleaver one. She's unsure about the title. He says it's a work in progress. Isn't everything. Something about the Jerry Mathers connection. That's Leave It to Beaver. Mathers, of course, was the boy who played Beaver in the show. That ran from 57 to 63. Chris says, rule of success for movies like this? One word titles. That true? One word titles versus multi-word longer ones? Different genre, but you're going to tell me Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan, wasn't a success? And look at Doolittle, 
or cats. One word titles, but both duds. And I'm going to make a prima facie case here and now that the Many Saints of Newark sounds a hell of a lot better than just Newark. Turns out, in the aggregate, the length of a movie title has very little correlation to box office success. There are just as many good movies with long titles as there are bad movies with short titles, and vice versa. Interesting, too, in light of all this, that this finale is a one-word title. She offers more notes. She's got a knack for this stuff. Says Michael, that's the character in Cleaver, knows it's the boss right away. Why not make more of a mystery out of it? Let the audience travel a little. She makes it known that she knows it's based on Anthony Soprano. Chris is unrattled by that. It's out in the open. You get the sense he's been an open book with her. And she picked up on it when he mentioned Satrials at the beginning of their thing, so it's fair game to openly discuss. Chris says there are some similarities. Like he thinks everything's his. But it's really just a jumping-off point. Like, boxing is a jumping-off point to tell a love story in Rocky. Or politics is a jumping-off point to get John King and Wolf Blitzer in a room together. But he can't get into it beyond that because there are rules. That word's so great, right? Coming from Chris. Especially since he's clearly already violated them by even admitting the existence of this thing. Then Chris makes it known that T and her were involved for a minute. Says it's weird being where he's been. She says he hasn't been anywhere. Kind of surprised she stayed, actually, after he said that, but that's a different story. Then Chris says something profound. Don't matter. He's been there in his mind. Again, a lot of lines, a lot of profoundness. Sharing the screen with the resplendent Juliana Margulies. Is this it for him? Or is it a classic chase smokescreen? Note, she's got a Melfi-esque statue on an end table next to her couch. They work out their hang-up, or rather he works out his. And we cut from the guy who used to wait in the car to guys who shot call. The Brooklyn crew. Stirring coffee like Catherine Keener. Jerry, Albie, Butch, and Vito discussing whether or not T was behind Fat Dom. Butch, first episode we really sink our teeth into him, is shaping up to be the most militant of the bunch. This in an episode where nothing happens, evidently. Hello? Butch? Giving this guy some breathing room to exist was enough for Kaisha to be a punch in the mouth. It's subtle, nuanced, dynamic. He likens this to 9-11. Tony wanted our attention, fine, he got it. Now we wipe him off the planet. Talk about coming into the GOAT show, hot. Fuck the backstory, slow roll. This guy walks in like Al Pacino, or as Christopher once said, 
DEFCON 4. This is Scarface, final scene. Bazooka's under each arm. Say hello to my little friend. Phil says, You know that fat cocksucker says I look like the Shah of Iran? Who does? Tony. I never got that at all. Fat piece of shit. What's not to get? Not for nothing, but the Shah, or Shah and Shah, the king of kings, was a frequenter of nightclubs in Italy and was linked to Italian actresses. Just saying. That whole pints of blood thing from earlier with little Carmine. A lot of DNA in that blood. Aside from their looks, I thought it'd be fun to compare and contrast the two men. For example, whereas Phil Leotardo did 20 fucking years, the Shah put in 38 as king. Like Phil, the Shah had a gumad, or three. Unlike Phil, who was put in jail, the Shah put people in jail. Political prisoners. Whereas Phil seized power on account his leader was a fucking disgrace. The Shah was installed into power by higher political and economic forces. Whereas the Shah presided on the highest economic growth rates, the likes of which you've never seen, Phil presided over divvying up no-show jobs. Whereas the Shah had a preference for secularism, Phil, vis-a-vis his wife especially, was a burn-you-at-the-stake Catholic. Both men had a penchant for violence against those who crossed them. Exhibits A and B of Benny Fazio and Angelo Garepe, and at least 25 other hits to Phil's name. However, these were trumped by the Shah's handling of over 3,000 dissidents. And like Pearl Jam's dissident, for those 3,000, escape was never the safest path. Like Phil, the Shah was a vocal homophobe. His father actually believed that showing affection towards sons would lead them towards homosexuality. Like Phil, the Shah would think men who cry were a fucking disgrace. Finally, both men had no scraps in their scrapbook. Okay, back to Butch. You start to see why he was introduced in Kaisha. A bridge to the end of the series. This guy's a catalyst, a propulsive force to drive a wedge between New York and New Jersey. One final thorn in Tony's side. And he wastes no time establishing this niche for himself. But he's testing you all the time. And you keep indulging him. You're right. But whack a boss? I won't do that. Guy's old school. Respect for this thing of ours. This thing, recall, 
Either it has meaning or no meaning. His words. Butch says it was done before, likely referring to Paul Castellano. By the way, the guy that is credited with the headshot got out of jail a couple of years ago for a different crime. John Cornelia. But Phil says it was wrong then, too. No matter then, Butch says, pick somebody over there. Pick somebody. Guy's what my friend Nate calls a horny teenager. Hankering for blood, like Lestat over here. Cut to Chris and Murmur storming out of a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Interesting. Could Chris be the target? Somehow, some way, would something else solve a problem for Tony without him having to lift a finger? Like with Richie. Feech. Chris says the white trash in there has turned Narcotics Anonymous into the fucking Jerry Springer show. Wonder what he might have said about recent events at our nation's capital. He opens up to murmur about what's going on with Juliana. Juliana called this guy out for not sharing, but now he can't stop. Murmur says T planted the flag, back the fuck off. Love that expression. Reminds me of the exchange between T and Richie April. What's mine is not yours to give. The fucking magnitude of that statement changes the air in the room every time you say it or think it. Chris pushes back, said nothing happened. Continuing to push a rock up a hill he knows is going to come tumbling down. Murmur calls the situation touchy. On the other hand, Chris? Fuck him and what he don't know. There's that loyalty. Transparency. Things he'll say right to T's face. Then Murmur, in a way that suggests, if you got it all figured out, then why are you asking me? So what's the problem? Problem, Chris says, is that she uses too. Junk. And that's a pathway to nowhere for him. Fucking movie of the week. Listen to me. Always with the drama. Then Murmur clarifies a little. Civilians can get through this. Worst case, get sent to Minnesota by their bosses. Now, if the NBA is any indication, that's a bad thing. As it's a place where stars leave and journeymen go to die. So wouldn't that make things worse for a recovering addict? Not better? What? Murmur finishes his contrarian view by saying, Tony will destroy you if this keeps up. Turn what's left of you to mulch. Chris ignores that and says she's good. Years sober, they met at a meeting. Again, and why present it as a problem to murmur in the first place? He's talking himself into it. Real sounding board-like. I officially like Murmur here. Overall, good guy. So far. He says that whole meeting people at meetings phenomenon never happens to him. 
To which I say, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So keep swinging, brother. But brass tacks, the two of them together could be enabling. Chris flips that, says the opposite. They'll look out for each other. And right here, you automatically see where this is going. Murmur offers support there too. Other school of thought, two are stronger than one. Tells him what he wants to hear upon recognizing a yes man is more the order of the day. Then Chris speaks in absolutes, and it's game over before it even starts. I know I'm different with her. The way he wags his head when he says it. The wag effectively indicating he's got the last word on the matter. But again, then why ask? Fucking confirmation bias over here. Cut to skiff at a grocery store salad bar. One of the best moments, especially for audience surrogates like these two. With a friend flanked by two Frosties. One Chris and one Tony, perhaps. Another married man? There's a spinoff series for you. Possibly connected to the mafia. She knows so, she says, because she was with the boss for a minute. Name drops Anthony Soprano. The friend so great. I'm sorry, Jules. I don't even know where to fucking start. I know. The friend we learn is her sponsor. But unlike Murmur, she's unmoved by Jules's plea that Chris is sweet and is good to her. Sponsor Amy lived in North Jersey all her life, unlike Jules. And she says those guys are sociopaths. Murderers. To which Skiff channels her inner junior. But instead of take it easy, we're not making a Western here. More like, you're getting a little carried away. The sponsor tries to hug it out, but Skiff says she's getting a cold. Under our new world order, what's she even out for then? Regardless, great platforming, to apply Chase's word to that detail. To set up the cough medicine, which sets up the heroin. Cut to the 40-year-old virgin on TV. Something A.J. Soprano would not be after this scene. Steve Carell getting waxed. Blanca and A.J. are watching it. They're at her place. For a movie like that to be forever imprinted on The Sopranos tells you how relevant it was in 2005. Returned some $180 million on a $26 million budget. Judd Apatow's directorial debut. This waxing scene was real, and numerous cameras were set up to cover it. Blanca hears some loud music coming from down the way, says it wakes up the baby. Then she tells AJ her ex used to kick their asses, but now they're back. Note, AJ stays on the couch, right where Tony would expect him to be. But Hector, the baby, wakes up. She goes to get him, and AJ reluctantly puts on his shoes and heads down. They all look at each other for a moment. Tension. AJ sighs, knows he's outmanned and outmuscled, so he decides to use his brain. Pops his trunk, wheels over a Gary Fisher mountain bike to them, a gift from his parents. Fisher, by the way, is considered the godfather of mountain biking. AJ says if they leave, he'll give it to them. 
It's never explained why he had a bike in his trunk to begin with, but it's about as regularness of life as it gets, so it fits. They agree. And next, AJ gets a legendary lay. Afterward, wonders how she feels about him being younger than her. She says he was born on the same day as Jesse Ventura, famous politician she looked up. Note the contrast. AJ's got no idea who he is. Speaking of Minnesota a moment ago, Jesse the body Ventura is the former governor. Of course, before that, he was a pro wrestler. Cut from one guy scoring to another shit out of luck. Chris home to a sick Jules. Chris says, forget about going out. Let me get the 50 cent movie out of my trunk and let's watch that. They were giving it away at the car wash. That's Terry Winter poking fun at himself. He, of course, penned to get Richard Die trying. Eight Mile was supposed to be the template. And, well, history has told us which one cut through. 46 million on a $40 million budget to Eight Mile's $243 million on a $41 million budget. He settles her on the couch as her coughing increases, says he's going to go grab her some Robitussin. She screams no. It's got dextromethorphan, which tricks your brain into stopping the cough reflex. But it can also be abused. And that abuse comes in plateaus. Four, ranging from euphoria to hallucination. He insists. And she wonders why he's in such a hurry to bring cough medicine into the house which he resents. Hypocrites who resent being called out. Regularness of life. Classic chase reminder of the fallibility of humankind. Note, he's wearing an overcoat, just like Johnny Sachs. He had that thrown in during the Maserati negotiations? Also note, like all the jackets Chris has worn throughout the series, it's wearing him not the other way around, like with tea. Instead, she asks for valerian tea. That's eight or nine tea bags of the stuff in a cup, which is equal to taking a Valium. A normal dose in use aids sleep and mitigates anxiety. Chris is intrigued. She says, same chemical family. Mary Curie over here. What do you think? He's down heads out to a specialty health food store to go get some. Running errands for a sick gumad rather than be home with his pregnant wife, his soon-to-be firstborn. Note, the screen fades to black here, portending a bad outcome this episode for Christopher. The criticism of this episode, I believe, misses the true genius. The setups are all there. The episode almost plays like a thriller. The specter of danger and the signs pointing to it are there from the beginning. We can hear and feel the monster lying in wait. We just don't see it. Remember the movie It Follows? We don't see jack shit, but it was no less gripping 
and sophisticated. Here too, death and mayhem follow all these guys all the time. It doesn't need to be provided on a silver platter just because of network scheduling or conventional wisdom. Cut to AJ at home working on the Christmas tree, having a tough time mounting it to the stand. (laughs) This just after getting mounted himself. Carm's looking at the mail. Christmas card from the Russos, their dogs. So sad. No kids, she says. Propping herself up at the expense of others. Never fails. Then she opens up a letter that says her spec house is a go again. Note, Tony's satisfied by the tree. Ending where the season began. The spec house. Nice touch. Cut to Phil and Patty in a less than stellar Christmas environment compared to the Soprano household. Their kitchen is almost junior level depressing. Interesting contrast. De facto, King of New York's habitat pales in comparison to the boss of so called pygmies across the river. Patty's talking about Christmas Eve, the meal, shrimp. Cherry stones via DeSanto. Got a store or a person, or maybe both. That's cherry stones as in clams. Phil's eating his dinner. Fine, good. But Patty wants to be sure. Last year, he said the cherry stones were chewy. He says the little necks then. Another kind of clam, only smaller. Jesus. Ebenezer Scrooge over here. The cleaning lady comes in. Patty yells specific orders. Soft scrub, lemon-scented. The camera cuts to her to reveal that it's the same woman with Phil the night of the wire room bombing. It appears she's working two jobs. Patty feels Phil's forehead, says he's cool as a cucumber. She always reminds me of the late, great Stuart Scott and his cool as the other side of the pillow. As they sit in their decrepit kitchen, Patty wonders what kind of Christmas Marie and the kids will have after all the veto shit. Phil, quickly, the DeBellas too, changes the subject. Point, other people are out there suffering too. What makes Marie think she's so special? It wasn't Ebenezer Scrooge that stopped by, but rather the ghost of Livia Soprano. She brings up Francesca, Spadafore's beautiful singing last Christmas, accompanied by her dad on the piano. And Phil? I gotta try and take a shit. Cut to the two of them at a hospital for the chest pain. It's not a heart attack, the doc says, played by the actor Asif Mandvi. If it was, the body would release proteins that act as markers, which would show in the blood, he explains. All he needs is some antacid. Many people would pay a lot of money, he says, for that diagnosis. Guy's in a hurry. Makes you wonder if everybody's in such a hurry in the ER, why the heck's it so slow? He walks off. Phil calls him an arrogant prick. (laughs) Another pitch-perfect regularness-of-life moment. Cut to Skiff pulling up next to another car. 
It's Chris. She hops in. Says she was late because of a Wall Street couple checking out a loft space. But wait, this was pre-recession. Things that bad that they had to bolt the city? Or maybe it was a little asset allocation. An investment they would rent out or sit on and flip if that bonus check was particularly heavy. No preambles between them. One thing Tony would like. Instead, they dive in straight for the drugs. That Valerian tea was a gateway straight to the set of what dreams may come. She unloads a capsule of heroin on foil and they both inhale the smoke. And she puts her head down on his lap. And symmetry. He pets her the same way he pet that dog at the Feast of St. Elzir. Cut to Phil gasping in bed. Notice how the scene before for a beat looked like Juliana was going down on Chris. Here, note Phil's reaction is a more common one when someone is going down on you. Thought that was funny. But it's not for that reason. It's the middle of the night. Patty turns the light on and he says he's dying. Moments later, back at the same hospital, the same doc is doing some paperwork and they walk or tumble right over to him. Not quite like Feech or Fred Astaire, but enough to summon a crash cart. The doc can't believe his eyes for a sec. Almost an out-of-body experience. You'd think an ER doc sees that dime a dozen. Phil falls right into his arms. Crash cart! Can I get a crash cart? Crash cart! Has to yell for it multiple times. What kind of emergency operation are they running over there? Lennox Hill, that ER, is not. Cut to the bing. Dancers with Santa hats. Paulie says he did a girl wearing a Santa hat once. Says it was too distracting, though. Murmur shows up. Walks straight to T. Says Phil took a heart attack. A big one. T's elated. So there is a Santa Claus. But Paulie's solemn. You happy about this T? Tony reminds everybody he's a pain in my balls. All of our balls. Sill, siding with Paulie, a manageable one. The devil you know. That first appeared in a book of Proverbs, by the way, by Richard Taverner, Bible translator. Meaning, it's better to do business with someone you know but don't like than someone you don't know. Super fast cut to Junior. What to make of that? The devil you know, incarnate. At least as it pertains to Tony. The place is doing crafts for the holidays. He's sitting alone, idle hands. They suggest he make a hand turkey. He calls them fucking idiots. Arts and crafts for one thing, but also the wrong holiday. Maybe if it was a Virginia ham. Just then, Bobby comes in to visit. He's delighted to see him. And so are we, in a sense. Reunited, and it feels so good. They hug. Bobby's got no eye patch now. Junior asks the room if they know what bacala is. Of course they don't. It's salted cod, he says. We taught the world how to eat. Chest out. Bravado. In a frail, broken being who doesn't want to let it go. Bobby takes an envelope out of his jacket. He kicking up? Still? Not exactly. 
says Junior should take it back. Junior said it was a gift for him and Karen and the kids. Karen. Part of me thought that was on purpose, not even wanting to acknowledge Janice. Bobby says, frankly, he shouldn't even be there after what happened with Tony. States the obvious. Junior, you shot him. His dementia is progressing fast. I know a few things you don't. Like maybe I wasn't acting alone. Back on this JFK thing. Bobby again stating the obvious. That was 40 years ago. Bobby slides over the envelope. Happy holidays. Great moment. Junior gets up, hands the envelope to an aide there. One hand washes the other. He's old school. You don't give back a gift. Giving back a gift like that? It's an insult. Liked how he made it right in his own way there. Cut to Tony telling firefighter jokes. The same joke Murmur told him last episode. Everything's fucking intentional. Down to the quaternary character's sidebar joke. Station is right next to Satrial's. As he turns away to head back, he sees Chris leaning into Skiff's car. They're chatting it up. Notice the light pole next to the car has a sticker on it that reads, Rat. Tony takes it in. Closer up shot of Chris saying goodbye. He starts to walk over and notices T noticing him. His normal-paced Chris Gate comes to a screeching halt. The body said, Oh, fuck. He puts on a smile and lands his X-Wing as if it were docking in the Death Star. They stand right in front of a fire truck. Great visual for what's about to go down. T, you know her? Chris can't look him in the eye. He's not as quick as T. Says, oh yeah, you and her. How'd that all go? Whatever happened there? He says he had to put that on the shelf. (laughs) The objectification blows his cigar in Chris's face, meaning she's still mine. Chris, the purported protege of cleverness, says she's a friend of Kaisha, the black girl Chris was telling him about. T blows again. Knows he's lying. The smoke. The smoke. Is this it for Chris? Says he was talking to her about Kaisha's birthday. What's a good gift? The verdict? Luther Vandross box set. Never too much with the bullshit on this guy. See what I did there? All these guys. Chase himself said 85% of everything that comes out of all their mouths is bullshit. Isn't it interesting, though, how much can be gleaned and how much can sit with you after all these years? T blows again, walks away. We see a wide shot of Chris. We're looking at him from inside the fire station. 
alone on an island. We're wondering, when is the final gasket with him going to blow? He hesitates, fuck me's himself in the mind a few times, and slowly walks over to Satrial's. Again, feels like his reckoning is near. Cut to Juliana's coffee table, cigarettes, drugs, drinks. Chris is smashed on her couch, rubbing his face. She's practically stripped down, statuesque, standing right in front of him. Then she lies down next to him, and he fascinates himself with a clear bottle of vitamin water. Nice callback to 50 Cent. If I recall correctly, an investment he made that paid off handsomely. Definitely more than that flick did. Probably even more than in the club. Chris says it's interesting, as things tend to be when you're baked. They're using again, but integrating it into their lives. She says they're a cut above because they're not using needles. <laughs> that triggers something in Chris. Great beat. Says you should probably come clean with Tony. He flashbacks to the past. Is coming clean to Tony a good idea, though? Remember what happened to Zellman when he came clean about Arena? He says T's already hanky. A great contextual word Chris probably picked up at the breakfast table one morning from his mom. He starts playing out the scenarios in his head, ultimately arriving at the conclusion of how bad it would be if T found out he was using again. This as she climbs off the couch, crawls across the floor, serpentine-like, call back to Gloria, perhaps, and hurls into a vase. Cut to T bolting out of the back of the bing, the same door we've seen him barrel out of throughout the series. Familiarity. Moments before, we're unclear how things are going to turn out this episode. Now only 17 minutes and change left. 15 if you take away the credits. Chris was out there waiting for him. There he is, he says. Their mom about the notion that Phil had surgery and is going to pull through. T says he's late to see his chiropodist, another word for podiatrist, thinking he meant Melfi. Besides, Chris already knows he sees a shrink. Chris stops him, says there's something he should tell him. T already knows, but okay, go ahead. The sounds of the cars and trucks whirring behind, great effect. Why the fuck did you lie to me? Chris says it was stupid. Wasn't sure how things ended with her. Mentions transparency this and above board that. Two two-faced cocksuckers having a two-faced pissing contest. T says he doesn't care. Do what you want. But he does care. Leaves. The camera trains on Chris's satisfied, smug face. That was easy. Same look AJ had when Blanca asked herself out for him. Cut to Melfi's chair. Tony, this is my reward. I do not betray my wife. I go out of my way to not have an affair with this woman. And my fucking turkey neck of a nephew winds up with his dick in there. Note the way he's describing the particulars and specifics to Melfi. The language. Sounds like a kid. A guy I gotta see every day. 
But she's encouraged. So good. The hand wag. With the fucking riddles again. She explains she was dreading some horror story about violence against his nephew. Just like we all were. But nothing. T says there's still time. There it is. You came out of that shooting feeling each day is a gift. Well, this is a corollary to that. What? She breaks it down in his language and gets quite a kick out of it, I might add. You don't have to eat every dish of rigatoni. You don't have to fuck every female you meet. Well, yeah, you do, right? The rigatoni part. Relax. Tony goes into this thing about how he recognizes a pattern with his women. Dark complexion, smart, smell a little bit of money. There's you and Gloria. Enough hesitation to acknowledge her untimely death. And this Ashkenuzi. (laughs) Referring, of course, to Juliana. So what's that about? Classic Melfi throws the question right back at him. What do you think it's about? He bites his lip and thinks about it. Then he's honest. Probably one of the few times he's been honest in this room. He says it's probably the same reason he comes to hang out with her. Here. Because nothing changes with the therapy part. An admission of sorts that he's still chasing it with Melfi. Another nice callback in a finale to past seasons and storylines. She takes it as a slap on the face, but doesn't show as much. Cut to suspenseful music playing. A smoke-filled room. Looks like a movie theater. Overlaid with a sequence of Chris and Jules lighting up. The movie is by Hitchcock. Immediately sounds like music from Vertigo. Which it is. It's one of those where you hear it once and you never forget it. She's watching the movie. Chris is watching her. Great double exposure effect. It's different. Cut to T. Back of Satrials. One of the butchers comes back to let him know Agent Harris is here. Wanted to let Tony know he was having a sandwich. T goes up front to see him. So how's the war on terror? Harris says Christmas is always potentially our busy season. Brings up Phil, the coronary. T puts his hands up and says he had nothing to do with that. Harris says he's still in touch with some agents who work OC and that T's not popular in Brooklyn right now. Harris giving Tony tips. Fascinating. And also probably a fireable offense. T plays it off. What else is new? But Harris isn't done. Someone close to you may be in danger. Wow. Aiding and abetting now. He bites into his sandwich while Tony processes. Perhaps part of Tony's thinking right here, it wouldn't be so bad if Chris was the target. Harris continues, it's under serious discussion at top levels. Tony starts to get up, actually kind of nervous for a beat, says thanks. Harris, biting into his sandwich again, it's Christmas. Once again, Harris comes off the bench, pulls the team 
this episode together. Guys, practically Lou Williams. Walking bucket every time he holds the ball. Cut to the VIP diner again, this time inside. Chris and Juliana are talking. We can't hear what, but we see his phone ring and he answers it. Now inside, it's Kelly. She's got cramping in her legs. Asks for a quattro formaggi when he gets home. Doesn't care how late it is. But mostly just called to say hi. You know, what people in relationships do. But he's put out and notices Juliana's bored. They get back to their conversation. He was telling her about using and that thing of his. Getting made, taking an oath, drawing blood. The confidentiality of it all. They're talking about the higher power aspect of the program. For Juliana, it's the group aspect that provides that. Chris says he believed his oath would be his higher power, but says nobody lives it anymore. Not Tony, not nobody, including him, by the way. Curiously, she wonders if he's breaking up with her. He says no, but in a completely not believable way. She wonders whether they should get to a meeting. He doesn't know. What he does know is Tony's breathing down his neck. And that's really all he can think about. She says one starts in 30 minutes in Glen Ridge. They hesitatingly go. The whole thing is a breakup of sorts without saying the words. Outside, she says, take one car. He says he'll follow. Again, brushing against the line of believability. And that's all she needs to hear to know. She's smarter than him. I thought this was a great way to end things for them. So subtle. So intelligent. So real. Cut to T. Walking through dangerous waters. Especially after what Harris just said. In the hospital to visit Phil. Butch immediately gets up. You should have called first. T walks past them all. Albie, Butch, Jerry. Albie quickly follows him to Phil's room. Where inside is Patty and Ginny Sack. Tony asks about John. But she can't speak. She can barely look at Tony after what he did with her house and Janice. An emotional Patty leaves. Now it's just Tony and Phil. Patty got you to come to Brooklyn, cocksucker. Then T tells him about his coma recollection. A shocking turn. As the expectation, right, is that he's going to whack Phil right here and now. Stuff him with a pillow or something, like Livia. This right after hearing the tip from Harris. He says he went someplace he never wants to go back to. And maybe Phil knows what he's talking about. Contrary to his views on crying, Phil sheds a couple three tears. T continues, says nobody ever laid on their deathbed wishing they saved more no-show jobs. Reaches for Phil's hand, grabs it, get better, get out of here, 
then focus on grandkids, the good things. Something we've heard him say before. He says there's plenty for everybody. Then says, nice touch, stop crying now. Tony showing empathy or strategy. Definitely a little bit of both. Leadership. And based on all that stuff I talked about earlier, unlike classic psychopaths, he's able to summon and harness empathy like one of Ryu or Ken's Hadoukens. Hadouken! Butch is waiting for him at the door, wants to let Phil sleep, then crowds him sarcastically, audaciously. We got to stop meeting like this. Fucking Butch. A couple of three scenes. Richie Aprile-level stature. Already the most feared guy on the show. Lot of moxie. That's writing. That's fucking character. Could Tony be in danger right there, in that moment? Echoes of the hospital scenes in one again. Cut to Carm at home, going through business cards. Finds the one on the PI, Stanley Klimek. She's got two careers now, it seems. Like Phil Leotardo's cleaning lady. But, psych, the one she goes for is for George the Roofer. Cut to Christmas dinner. Bobby Jr. is channel surfing the classics that are always on around Christmas time. Carm, Kelly, and Janice are working in the kitchen. Well, Carm and Kelly are. Jan's doing what Jan does. Hugh comes in to appreciate the tree perhaps wondering if there's a new Beretta under there for him. Also, looks like he made up with Carm. Maybe she put him back on the job. Tony's wearing one of those French caps, a beret, gift from Carm. Bobby's talking about tracking Santa on Air Force radar. Whatever small talk he can muster until he's able to go back to his Lionel's. TC's Chris making himself a drink using tongs to get ice, as if that wasn't annoying enough? Are you going to hog all the ice? (laughs) A nice way to let Chris know he's on him in a passive-aggressive sort of way. A boogeyman on his trail, heading into the final stretch. In a way, actually, right back to square one. AJ comes in. He brought Blanca, introduces her to the family. Hugh admires her chest. I mean, Bagatelle, her necklace. A gift from Anthony. A selfless act with hard-earned money of his own. He's come a long way over a two-episode story arc. Carm and Tony notice each other, noticing what's happening. Then Meadow calls from California. Christmas music is playing, letting us know this episode is ending in a most non-traditional Sopranos 
way. But that's precisely the point. Terry Winter rebounded a loose ball. Quarterback passed it to Chase, who behind the back no-looked it to Weiner, who switched hands midair to bank it off the glass. Kaisha was a masterclass in executing an ultimate vision. Ensconcing us in the majesty of the past while readying us for a final playoff run. AJ's holding the baby, a signal that Tony's construction job plan somehow backfired. Carm says privately, she's 10 years older than him and she's Puerto Rican. (laughs) T says he thinks she's Dominican, maybe. But at least she's Catholic. Even Carmela can get around that, right? But she purses her lips. Her Catholicism, it seems, is not colorblind. At least insofar as her kids are concerned. What are you looking at me like that for? You overjoyed when I shut them down, eh? Bobby and Chris are wondering about the necklace. You always see the two of them cornering AJ. It's almost become a little bit of a trope for the show. Tony overhears. You should have asked me. I got a guy. AJ ain't probably one of his top five lines. I got a job. Great contrast between him and his dad. I liked Autopsy's link between AJ's legitimate W-2 and Tony's Fugazi one at Barone. Though, this job was at a construction site controlled by the mob. But still. AJ's putting in an honest day's work for an honest day's pay and injecting that money back into the American economy. Something any dad would be proud of. Later that night, Bobby Jr. locked on Casablanca, which I always interpreted as a rework of this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. The show reminding us this is the beginning of the end. T has a great one-way conversation with Meadow in front of everybody. And then the camera pulls away from the room, reveals everybody together, happy, calm, at ease for now, but seemingly enclosed, almost like passengers on a sinking ship. Importantly, Sans Meadow. But all that remains to be seen. Here, we've logged one more leg around the track with lots of unfinished business to resolve. The first of two finales. This one ending on a somewhat high note. Does that suggest a certain yin and yang symmetry in the next one. Kaisha was an episode that highlighted the regularness of life more than anything else, really. And quite frankly, I think that's why I love it so much. Gently reminding us how life will be when the series ends, 
and how their world and ours seemingly coalesce when it's all said and done. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next season.